So tonight we're carrying on with the um, series on the three characteristics or three marks of existence. Last week I spoke about impermanence, change, and this week I'll be speaking about dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature of experience. As I was um, preparing the talk and just kind of you know, feeling my way into it, what I really noticed was how tender the heart felt in speaking about dukkha. Um, because dukkha you know, is so prevalent in the world, can be so prevalent in our experience, can be a place of great entanglement. And so there was this great tenderness of heart, but there was also a joy, a delight, because it's really the understanding of dukkha that can help to unravel this whole karmic knot. You know, that um, when we can really see experience in its nature, really, and the, these three characteristics are so helpful in this. You know, these three, I'm going to recap a little bit here. Here you can see my mind's jumping a bit. But, um, you know, these three characteristics, three marks that are common to all conditioned experience. And when we let our minds settle, become non-interfering, and really just allow things to be as they are, we start to see these three characteristics. You know, we really begin to see, to know directly and immediately in our own experience how everything is in flux, everything is changing. And then just in the seeing that, that very naturally leads into the seeing of the unsatisfactory nature of these experiences because they are impermanent. They are not a place that lasting happiness can be found. And then that leads us into seeing that this is all really impersonal, insubstantial. It's arising out of this conditioned matrix. And that, you know, in the scene of this, it's like the way that it depersonalizes it. And then we are not entangled within this. And, you know, these three characteristics are really the gateways to liberation. The understanding of them is so profound that it helps to free the mind from the bondage that we so often experience. And again, just in speaking about these, I want to emphasize that they are what we see when we pay attention, when there is wise attention, that these are not something we need to overlay onto experience, not something that you know, we need to uh, kind of attune to, because when we pay attention, this is what is seen. 
and you know it's just it's like what, what if we if we let the mind rest in an intellectual understanding of impermanence unsatisfactoriness the impersonal insubstantial nature of experience then we will not find the transformative understanding that that is just a way the almost in which we placate the mind you know if if there's a pleasant experience and it disappears oh yeah it's impermanent but it's a kind of a dissing of it in some way um, and really these are profound facts of life that seen and understood in their immediacy as these characteristics are deeply transformative. So please do not believe these characteristics, but really look in your own experience. Look closely. Closely examine what arises in body and mind because this is where we can see for ourselves these characteristics. And just seeing with an open mind and heart, not an overlay. Discover. That's where the, the practice is so rich in, you know, in that sense of exploration and discovery for ourselves. So tonight, dukkha, this unsatisfactory nature of experience due to the transient nature of all conditioned experience. So the word dukkha is often translated as suffering. And if we just leave it as suffering, it probably takes us to a very limited understanding of what the Buddha was pointed to, pointing to with the use of the word dukkha. And you know, dukkha just does not translate easily into the English language. And there's different facets of it tonight, facets of it that I'll highlight tonight. When dukkha is just translated as suffering, I think this is where uh, Buddhism takes on the sense of being very pessimistic teachings, which isn't true at all, because the Buddha was teaching the end of suffering, which is in fact great news, <laughs> um, and you know, really the happiness that is available to all of us. Um, but you know, I know that. I've seen in my own mind uh, how, you know, when I first started going to retreats with the Burmese Sayadas, and, and I just heard all the time about suffering, suffering, suffering. And I went home from my first retreat with them, and I said, whoa, Buddhists really have a thing about suffering. <laughs> and then, you know, I went back to another retreat. And, you know, the, the getting more in touch with the suffering, but then thinking, well, it's because the practice is wrong. <laughs> you know, it's because the teachings are wrong. You know, it, it wasn't because it was how I was relating in my own experience, but then at some points getting a sense of that, and then finding that there was a real interest in suffering. But initially, when we just hear about suffering, it can bring up 
this pessimistic, um, and you know, probably for each of us at times, you know, we have fallen into that pessimistic view. Oh yeah, well, it's all unsatisfactory anyways. You know, I'm just, uh, you know, fed up with resignation. You know, and, the, and again, that's not the true understanding um, that, that is going to really help uh, break the heart from bondage, help free the heart. I'd like to speak uh, a little bit about the word itself. That in Pali, it comes from two words, du and ka. And du refers to that which is bad, low, difficult, vulgar. And ka to that which is empty or hollow. And a description that's commonly used in the Buddhist teachings is where there's an axle that doesn't quite fit into the hole. And so, you know, there's this constant rub, irritation. There is discomfort. There is unrest. Um, It suggests disharmony, um, uncomfortable, out of sorts, and where nothing's fitting together. And, you know, there's times in life where there is a sense of things being grating. You know, it's just this constant rub that just isn't quite right. And it it can be irritating, you know, when the mind's in reaction to it. Um, Another description, and I think this is helpful, it's that which is hard to bear. That which is hard to bear. And at times, that's how it seems. Things are hard to bear. And another description which is really helpful is that which is incapable of satisfying. Now, and this is conditioned experience. Incapable of bringing that satisfaction that we are seeking. Know, and where we keep looking outside of ourselves. We keep looking to experience. And it's incapable of satisfying. And so it's just unsatisfactory in its nature. And this, it's so relieving. Because what happens is when we hit this unsatisfactory nature, if we don't understand it, we personalize it. We've done something wrong. It's a personal failing. If we could just get everything right, you know, and we try so hard as human beings. And that's what is sad. That's what makes the heart so tender. Because we do, we try so hard in our lives. But it's just misguided. It's based in misperception. It's not based in a personal failing. And that's what's so relieving to see. I know on the retreat I did last fall, I was just touching into how in my life there had been this continual striving for some form of perfection. And just the seeing that 
that perfection is never going to be found in the way that I had been seeking it, by getting things right, in alignment, in harmony with how I thought things should be. Never going to happen. And it's like, you know, that, that continual trying that isn't onward leading, that is only going to lead to more dissatisfaction. And just the feeling of that, it's like, whoa, the heart quivers right there. You know, so much attention being given to the seeking of happiness in misguided ways. But the freedom that comes in the seeing of that, you know, putting down the striving for perfection that cannot be found. Wow, it's huge. It's so relieving. And that's the joy. That's the the happiness. We really see in our practice where we start hitting that sense of unsatisfactoriness, you know, that great, that, that things just being an uneasiness. When we really begin to see that, still because of the habit of mind, we will often take it personally, as if we didn't get it right, as if we aren't practicing in the right way. And yet, again, if the mind can light upon just the unsatisfactoriness, not personalizing, it's freeing. It's just, oh, you know, this is the way it is. This, you know, there's no satisfaction in this. And, you know, we've seen this in our lives in, in gross levels where, you know, one bite of chocolate is very pleasing to the taste buds. A pound of chocolate later, it's not quite so pleasing. You know, we, we, we see that there's, that's not a really significant way of finding happiness, that there is something unsatisfactory in there. But we also, through our practice, begin to see it in different ways. Um, and... You know, we see it by way of, of these pleasant experiences that come by, that are pleasing, that we love. And then conditions change. And, you know, it was based in experience rather than understanding. And we see that, yeah, you know, I, I remember one time going to bed at night. It was after, you know, during a long retreat and a time when practice had really had a sense of flowing. And I was, I went to bed and I felt like the mind was saturated in the pleasant experience. But there was also a wisdom that knew, so what? 
it felt free because I knew, you know, I've, I've seen before in my mind where those states, those same states were there. And the, the mind's going, wow, look at this. Now we've got something. Now we're on the right track. And, you know, just to see, to see it in full display. And so what? No big deal. It's so freeing. To help understand the broadness of the word dukkha, as the Buddha used it, um, he spoke about there being three types of suffering. And this really helps us to broaden it from what we normally think of as suffering. The first type of of dukkha that he spoke of is very much how we relate to it. It's where there is unpleasantness of body and mind. Uh, You know, this is the very common level of suffering. We know it in body when there's sickness, unpleasant feelings, uh, when we're... um, watching the decomposing of the body as we age. You know, we, we really touch into this level of dukkha. Or uh, in the mind, you know, that when the mind is in reaction, when, you know, rage is present in the mind, you know, sometimes, you know, we can really feel the dukkha of that. Or when we're caught in something like frustration or guilt, Uh, we see that this is unpleasant and uh, very, very painful. It's really an immediate and direct experience in any uh, sort of pain or discomfort. Um, And, you know, some of this can be quite natural, that, you know, through the course of one's life, that there just is uh, painful experiences. You know, the body itself. I, I spoke about it quite at length, I think, last week in, in speaking about impermanence. That, you know, through the aging process, it's subject to change. And some of this gets really uncomfortable. And that there, it, it, there's just something quite natural in that level of suffering. But this level of uh, dukkha um, also relates to where it's more self-created. Know where in relationship to the pain, to the complexity of life, that there can be, you know, emotional response or patterns of response, you know, psychological conditioning that happens that is also very unpleasant and, you know, can have a heaviness to it, you know, with states of depression where, you know, it's just like the sense of being beaten down by the unpleasantness of certain aspects of life. Um, There can be, you know, states like jealousy, embarrassment, shame, guilt, loneliness, that where there is... uh, a level of unsatisfactoriness that we touch into, a level of suffering. Um, You know, a lot of this comes about our interpretation or way of relating to some of the natural forms of of dukkha, of 
uh, of unsatisfactory nature. Um, and, you know, sometimes within it there's really a mix where we're coming in contact with really the natural forms that are kind of unsavory in life and where the mind is in reaction to it. You know, a, a, a friend of mine was telling me a story one day about going to a hospital and Actually, I hope I didn't tell this last week. <laughs> if I did, you can just know it's it's the mind. <laughs> it doesn't always remember everything. Okay, so this friend went to this hospital, and uh, there was this man and woman there, and uh, they were elderly, probably in late seventies, early eighties, and the man was obviously very sick and maybe close to death. And the woman was in complete reaction to this. She was just in a rage about it. She was screaming, he's been healthy his whole life. Why should this be happening to him? You know, and it's like just, you know, aging happens. This transition, you know, death is inevitable. And then the mind's reaction to it. And, and it can at times be very strong and lead to intense suffering. So this first type of suffering, an immediate and direct experience of uh, something that is painful, uncomfortable, and feeling the unsatisfactoriness of that. Then there is a level of dukkha, which is really the dukkha of change. And on one level, the dukkha of change is is in the uh, kind of the suffering of suffering which is the, the first level of suffering, where you know, because things are impermanent, always changing, there's no uh, lasting happiness in there, that that is you know, uh, a type of suffering that is evident, is a part of the, the, the suffering of suffering. But in the suffering of change, what it really starts to point towards is that there is a, uh, a suffering that is in the attachment to the pleasant experiences. And this is really important because this is where, you know, we don't understand how, you know, when life is going well, that there is suffering. But what happens in our minds is there is a great addiction to the pleasant experience. And it seems like scientists have actually discovered that, you know, not only is there this addiction to the pleasant experience, but that in just the um, anticipation of pleasant experience, there is a chemical released in the mind that creates pleasant experience. And right there, we start to get addicted. 
you know, that, that, and in our lives, then there's the, this continual anticipating and looking for that next hit, the next pleasant experience. And we know this is an exhausting way to live that it just le- it leads to such agitation, like the uh, uh, the chomping at the bit to get, to have, to, you know, that uh, uh, continual seeking for that pleasant hit. So the, the dukkha of change is around the attachment to pleasure or getting what we want. And our bodies and minds actually get programmed to go for that through this chemical release in the mind. And so, you know, it's deeply conditioned to go for that which holds promise, that which seems beautiful, that which seems pleasurable, lovely. But underlying this, is a sense that something else is needed in order to be whole. And that actually, you know, it's quite sad on some level. You know, that there's a real dissatisfaction in where this grasping comes from, this addiction to. And it really comes from a distortion of perception in thinking that all of these experiences, all of these pleasures will bring happiness. No, it's not seeing deeper. In this way that we find that we are fine so long as conditions are useful the way we want. And this is very, very conditioned because, you know, it's inevitable that at some point in our lives things will not be in alignment with what we want, how we think things should be. So the second form of dukkha is the dukkha of change. And you know, this is really helping us to see in the pleasant experience, this too is subject to change. The third form of dukkha is that of pervasive dukkha, pervasive suffering. And this is a level of suffering that actually many times before we have a meditation practice, we are not so in touch with. And um, actually, just hearing the words pervasive suffering, again, that rings out, all life is suffering. (laughs) But it's really that there is a relentlessness to this change that brings about an unsettlement, unsettledness, 
a restlessness, you know, as a level of agitation in, in just the face of perpetual change. Uh, you know, we see it in the grosser levels, but as we practice, we see it in very refined ways. That, you know, there's this, uh, it can sometimes in a day of practice feel like a bombardment on the sense doors, an impingement on the sense doors. It's just like, you know, that, that sensory input constantly firing. And, you know, it's all just perpetual. And we don't even have to do anything. It's already happening. On the gross level, we see it in our lives by just the relentlessness of what it takes to care for this mind and body. You know, only recently I've, I've really been feeling it around the dishes. You know, I haven't lived alone so much in my life. And, and over the past year, I've, I've been living alone more. And my partner is a great dishwasher. But, you know, without him there, it's every time I look in the kitchen, there is more dishes to be done. I can't believe it. And I don't even think I, you know, I eat over here a lot. <laughs> How does this happen? And it's unbelievable. <laughs> and, you know, this is a, definitely a gross level of it. But <laughs> look at the course of a day and the, and the life of a human being waking up, getting out of bed. Uh, I, you know, we all have different ways of doing this, but, you know, for me, shower first thing in the morning, clean this body. And then it's, you know, dress this body. In order to dress this body, one has to have, you know, finances to dress this body, which has further implications. And then dressing this body, feed this body. And then, you know, it's like having to get the food from somewhere, having to collect it from somewhere, and, you know, digest this body. And for many of us, that's getting harder and harder. And, and then medication, if the body isn't digesting this body correctly. And, and then, you know, then we go out to do what we have to do um, to provide shelter for this body. And, you know, then there's the complexity of being in the world and, and all that that brings with us. And, you know, this is just to make it day to day. And, you know, a lot of this complexity, we can just say, forget it. I'm not going to do it. We can't do that. I mean, we can, but, but, you know, death will be the result of it if we just stop doing anything in relationship to it. And it, it's just, it's continual over and over and over again. And the refinement of the scene of it as we do in practice, which could be from coming in, sitting down. You know, we're on fire with the Dharma. We're going to sit till we're like that Buddha under the Bodhi tree, until we're fully awakened and we're sitting. And then there's some discomfort in the body. And at some point, you know, it's just like, ah, having to move, having to shift. And if it's not having to shift the body posture, it's having to go to the toilet. You know, it just, it happens. <laughs> and we, actually, it's said that, um, you know, the four, because there's four postures and we're continually moving, we really conceal a level of dukkha. 
but so much of the body moving from posture to posture is around the discomfort from this body. That's kind of interesting. We can find that this sense of this continual change, this impingement on the sense doors, moving, you know, the need to move the body, it can at times feel really oppressive. And then in the more, more refined ways, it's like this subtle level of uneasiness that we discover more and more as we practice. And, you know, it seems unbelievable at times. You know, as peace starts to refine, then it's like, you know, an itch that's just under the level of consciousness. And you think, my God, you know, these conditions, they're so perfect in some way. You know, there's really an accessible level of peace. And then then there's just this... Uh, you know, just this quivering of restlessness. And it's really just this touching into this pervasive level of suffering. And, you know, with this pervasive level, it doesn't matter whether the experiences are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's a ceaseless quality to it. So, speaking about these three different types of dukkha, you know, really just trying to broaden out how we relate, or you know, what gets triggered in the mind around the word dukkha. Because it really is uh, a word we need to explore. And, you know, maybe the word dukkha is going to end up in our Dharma language, you know, much like metta has, uh, because we can't really adequately translate it. And here is um, a description that comes from the, the... uh, website access to insight, but in in reading it, I couldn't actually figure out who was saying it. But I, I think it's kind of interesting. It said, it says, no single English word adequately captures the full depth, range, and subtlety of the crucial Pali term dukkha. Over the years, many translations of the word have been used, such as stress, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, etc. Each has its own merits in a given context. There is value in not letting oneself get too comfortable with any one particular translation of the word, since the entire thrust of Buddhist practice is the broadening and deepening of one's understanding of dukkha until its roots are finally exposed and eradicated once and for all. One helpful rule of thumb, as soon as you think you found the single best translation for the word, think again. For no matter how you describe dukkha, it's always deeper, subtler, and more unsatisfactory than that. <laughs> it doesn't really sound heartening, but, <laughs> but there's, you know, uh, it's like flushing it out and really letting the mind be open to that flushing out. 
You know, it's, it's a cornerstone in Buddhist teachings. You know, the, the, the Four Noble Truths, the truth of dukkha, uh, or the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, uh, the end of suffering, and the way leading to the cessation of suffering. You know, that is quintessential teachings of the Buddha, really fundamental way to be approaching our lives, our experience. And the Buddha was a pragmatic teacher. He was really you know, pointing to what is relevant in our lives. And so you know, it's like flushing out where suffering is in our lives, even in the most subtle ways, to really find the underpinnings of suffering and to understand it in our own minds. You know, the, the cause of suffering, which really goes into that craving, grasping, clinging. And when we can understand that, see that, there comes the abandoning of that, which leads to the end of suffering. It takes a lot of courage to do the exploration. You know, sometimes we we gotta give a little pep talk, <laughs> rally to the situation. Well, I mean, the habits of walking away from suffering, unpleasant, you know, even just unpleasant experience, so deeply ingrained. Uh, a great, <laughs> you know, a time of seeing this again on the gross level. Uh, but just seeing that habituated response to that which is unpleasant. I went to a uh, shopping mall. I got out of a car, and I looked down at the tire, and it looked like it was going flat. And the response in my mind was, I'll just pretend I didn't see that. (laughs) As if that's going to (laughs) help. If it's flat, it's flat. (laughs) Isn't that true? And, you know, if it's unsatisfactory, it's unsatisfactory. You know, we can't pretend. We try hard, though, huh? Oh, man. You gotta laugh. You gotta laugh. What else to do? Oh, boy. The mind is humbling, isn't it? But, you know, the key in here, and this is what we see, the impersonal. You know, it's not, nothing, nothing in this is personal, other than the story we're weaving. And, you know, just, wow, that story gets intense, huh? You know, the woeful story we can tell ourselves. I mean, I think it would be wonderful if we could have some kind of collage in here, that, you know, just within this room that represents all the little stories we have about our suffering that are going. And this is not to minimize it. You know, that there's really hard stuff. There's really, you know, yes, that, (laughs) unsatisfactory. But where we personalize it, identify with it, that's the extra. That's deep dukkha. That's the suffering of suffering. 
But through seeing these three characteristics, really seeing, you know, and, and this, you know, they're woven together. The scene of impermanence, the scene of change. That, 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 that is just something that will happen with each conditioned experience. That it's in its nature. There's no changing that. And, you know, then it's like, oh, the mind sees, yeah. You know, just like I described, that night of laying in my bed after you know, a period of practice, day of practice, and all of this bliss. So what? We see that in itself is not satisfying. And then that will naturally lead us into seeing the impersonal, insubstantial nature of all experience. They really work together. And you know that it's often taught that impermanence is the one that we're going to taste first because it's more readily accessible in some way. But sometimes, you know, it can be being on retreat and just the repeated scene of no satisfaction, nothing satisfying. And then that will be the gateway into the understanding of the other two. Or sometimes, you know, it's just that flavor of these changing conditions. You know, the wind of it not referring back to an I, me, or mine. And we begin to just touch into the other two characteristics. These being deeply transformative. And this helping to turn the mind towards the unconditioned, towards a happiness that isn't based on things being a certain way, that really, you know, the insecure form of happiness that we get so enchanted by. If we can take an interest in dukkha itself. It's life-changing. You know, before there is that interest, think of what the mind is like. We hit the unsatisfactoriness. We hit, you know, this bombardment, this continually changing, the uncontrollability. And the mind's in reaction. There's blame. There's anger. You know, it's, it's just very, very painful. But when we take an interest, when we start to look, to inquire, actually just in that movement of mind, that interest itself lights up the mind. It brings a type of joy. You know, there is a joy in seeing truth. There is a joy, joy just in learning. You know, even when we've been doing mundane learning in our lives, we're studying something and interest is there. The mind naturally becomes lighter. And that's already, you know, a big step away from when we're feeling entanglement, identification with that dukkha. That there's a real lightening that happens through that interest in. 
And then, you know, through that interest in, there comes the understanding. You know, the, where, where we really begin to see for ourselves the cause of suffering in our own hearts and minds. So, I love something that Ajahn Sumedho says. And again, it sounds weird when you relate to dukkha's suffering, but he says, dukkha should be welcomed. And that's where we need the fully, the broad view of what dukkha is, and really the awareness, the understanding, even it's only on the relative level, that this is the very place we can find freedom through understanding, through really allowing life to be seen in its nature as it is. I really find it so inspiring that not only was there the Buddha, you know, the man who over 2,500 years ago sat under the Bodhi tree, I mean, and even just the journey of his life, that where in his life he saw that there was suffering, but he sensed a possibility, a way out of that suffering, and began that journey which led him to look so deeply that his mind was freed. And so his personal story is very inspiring and can really help bring about that courageousness of heart to look when the going is rough, to, to know that he was able to realize the end of suffering the end of dukkha. And that, you know, more inspiration that not only was it just the Buddha that could do this, it was not something unique to him, but it was something that many people since the time of the Buddha have been able to realize, have been able to embody this understanding And so, you know, as we touch into the edges of dukkha, to see if we can look with a tenderness of heart, a balance of mind that can just allow things to be without defining oneself by it. I mean, that's where we really get into the heavy, heavy dukkha when we are defining ourselves by these unsatisfactory experiences, these changing experiences, we're personalizing something that isn't personal. Having this willingness of heart 
I'd like to share a, t- a poem that to me really reflects something of this. It's called, There is a Brokenness, by Rashani. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which comes the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy, and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose separated edge cuts the heart as we break open to the place that is unbreakable and whole. Letting our hearts be touched. Looking into the depths of suffering. Looking to find that which is unbreakable. Which is already here, but unrecognized. So let's just sit for a moment. So closing with the chanting of the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.